2: again, my friend, and welcome in to another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Man, I swear to God, I'm not just saying this. I think you get better looking every single time we meet up at this time of the month. I am Clint Davis. I talk movies and television here on the show every single month. We've been bringing it to you for about five years now here on the Stream Police, and uh, in just a little bit we'll be hearing from my pal and yours, Andy Sedlak, who talks music right here on the show if this is your first time joining us somehow thank you for uh, coming into the fold and uh this show's a little different than most of the podcasts you may have listened to we do it monologue style so i do a little monologue i talk movies and television then i pass it over to andy he does a little monologue from his house uh in cleveland by the way i'm sitting in my closet in beautiful columbus ohio and uh, then he passes it back to me i wrap things up bada bing bada boom and then you're out of here doesn't cost you a dime and you might just learn a few things along the way. At least I hope so. That's kind of our whole goal here, aside from giving ourselves some kind of valuable creative outlet during this pandemic. But let's face it, we've been uh, talking into these tin cans since well before that started. So uh, that's just an excuse, I guess, for us to keep coming in here into the closet and into the, the uh, home studio, in Andy's case, uh, and bringing you this. The Stream Police Podcast. I want to urge you to go over to YouTube and check out Overdue Review. That is my YouTube channel. If you want to see my sparse video output over there, it's pretty. Uh, it's 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 pretty sparse. It's about as sparse as you would expect for someone who has a full time job, um, has a two year old, and uh, doesn't make any money from YouTube. So that's probably about what you'd expect. So, but if you go there and check it out, I think you'll like what I have done and what I hope to continue doing there. On a semi regular basis at Overdue Review on YouTube. And I'm on Instagram also at Mr. Clint Davis. Andy is there as well if you want to follow him at Andy Sedlak. A lot of times I'm posting about what movies I'm watching, and Andy is posting a lot of times about what record he's pulling out of his massive shelf uh, of vinyl at home up there by the lake. Our 84th edition of the program, and I always enjoy The October Show, I gotta tell you, because. We always do a spooky theme song in the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. And we'll get to that in just a few minutes. I usually like to start the show by lighting up a cigar here in my closet. I know it doesn't sound great if you're a fire marshal, but it it helps me get in the mood. But I haven't been doing that throughout this entire pandemic and really since uh, June, I think, because of all the... Um, You know, I can't breathe, and I mean, that's been going on for years, but all the Black Lives Matter protests that have kind of just even more accentuated people literally not being able to breathe and being choked out um, for no reason whatsoever. And uh, so I just don't feel like Lighting Up Stogie's right now is sending the right message here on the show. So I'm not going to do it until, at very least, we get this COVID-19 thing wrapped up. But I don't know. I'm hoping I've got a reason to light up a Stogie come Uh, The first week of November, but I guess we'll find out about that before the next time we get together. Anyway, coming up here on this edition of the Stream Police, Andy is going to be talking about the late Edward Van Halen. He'll be paying tribute to him. Man, another titan. We just have been like Neil Peart, John Prine, Eddie Van Halen, but especially like Neil Peart and Eddie Van Halen, like two real virtuosos of their instruments and like in popular music because Rush is a very popular band, Van Halen very popular chart-topping band uh for a couple decades and these guys were like the best at their instruments. I mean, Pert's up there with the absolute best drummers ever and Van Halen's up there with the best guitar players to ever play the instrument. Some people would argue he is the best to ever play the instrument. Um, and but those weren't bands that just a- appealed to music snobs. I mean, they were able to take like virtuoso musicianship and turn it into something that, it, you know, people that didn't know anything about that kind of stuff and didn't give a shit about 7 8 time or, you know, any, any crazy time signature changes that they were going to be doing or any just really inventive riffs they were going to be making up or drum parts. And uh, they made it accessible to everybody. So I just, I, I'm amazed by the people that we've lost in this past year we always lose a lot of people every year but this year with everything else it just feels like man really going to take more from us It's uh, it's it's been a very very tough year but yeah he's going to be talking eddie van halen and there's a lot of fun to be had when you talk about eddie van halen it's not going to be your usual bummer obituary i don't think uh, so we'll see what andy has to say about that also he's going to be taking a dive into a spooky song in honor of the month of october that's really one of the best recordings in american music history and i i know that sounds like hyperbole but i really think it is the immortal i put a spell on you by screaming jay hawkins you know it you love it and trust me the story behind the song is almost as good as the song itself almost as good as the song itself i think andy would agree with me on that so we'll be hearing from him in just a little bit so i talked last month about the Monday Night Football theme song from ESPN and our look at the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. And I got some positive feedback from a few of you guys who thought that that was an excellent choice for the greatest TV show theme song ever. And that the facts behind the song were actually pretty interesting, so I'm glad you enjoyed that. It got me thinking, though, about how football really has the monopoly on great sports music. I mean, the NBA on NBC theme is fantastic, and actually that was the first ever sports theme that I did in the greatest TV show theme song of all time. That was the first sports song I ever used was the NBA on NBC, uh, that John Tesh song. So basketball has that one, but that one's not even used anymore. It's like been retired. It's like it sounded too old or something. But football has all these great songs that were written just for football and that are continued to use, continu- they've been used for decades and decades, and I can't imagine them ever going out of style. So I think of all those incredible, like over-the-top songs that Sam Spence, who was the composer at NFL Films for years, that he wrote, that you still hear all the time, tracks like Duel in the Dust. <laughs> Or March to the Trenches. And of course, the ubiquitous classic Roundup, which is really a masterpiece all of its own. But did you know that I, your humble narrator, love football music so much that my ringtone is actually one of the songs that they use under highlights on ESPN's NFL Primetime? It's this song. This song plays every time my phone rings. If you ever call me, this is the song I hear. So that's how much of a football music nerd I am. But anyway, I'm glad some of you guys enjoyed the uh, cho- choice last month of the Monday Night Football theme. That's just an outstanding song. If you want to ever give me any feedback on the show, you can always write me at theclintdavis at gmail.com. T-H-E, clintdavis at gmail.com. And you can reach out to Andy at sedlakjournal at gmail.com. S-E-D-L-A-K, journal at gmail. Com. All right, let's get on to it. Let's get to the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week, our 57th entry into the canon. And like I said at the beginning of the show, every October, going back the last four years, I've singled out a creepy theme song in this segment. And we've covered the themes from American Horror Story. We did that one. We did Unsolved Mysteries. Alfred Hitchcock Presents a couple years ago. We did The Addams Family last year. Uh, at this time and this year we're going with what has long been one of my favorite tv theme songs ever it's one of those that i think perfectly captures the style of the show i think it captures its era perfectly and i think this song will get buried deep into your head i'm talking about the opening theme from cbs's the Munsters. <laughs> I mean, just listen to that song, those surf drums. You got that twangy guitar. It all kind of sounds like a Beach Boys instrumental almost, but it's like the Beach Boys from Hell because it's kind of got those dark chords in there. This whole track is just so 1960s. And, of course, the Monsters ran from 1964 to 1966, so it makes sense. And this is a totally fun track, but it's also a little dark, you know, which is what the Monsters was all about. It's a funny, fun show, but it's got a little bit of a dark edge to it. I mean, it's not some serious show where, like, these... This monster family is killing people that come to visit them. It's a really, it's a silly show that just plays on the old tropes of the monster movies and of the family sitcom in general. But the theme song is just a masterpiece all around. This track was written by a composer named Jack Marshall, who did all the music for the series. And he was even nominated for a Grammy for this song in particular in 1965, but he lost to Henry Mancini's iconic Pink Panther theme. So, you know, it's hard to put it up there with the Pink Panther theme, but I probably personally like the Munster theme a little bit better, so I would have voted for it if I was on the Grammy committee back then. Looking into Jack Marshall, though, I found out that he was actually the father of the legendary movie producer Frank Marshall, who co-founded Amblin with Steven Spielberg. So you, over the years, have definitely loved, or at least seen, a movie or two that was produced by the son of the guy who wrote this song. So that's pretty cool. If you don't know anything about The monsters, it was the sitcom that followed a family of monsters that included a father who was modeled after Frankenstein's monster, there was a vampire mom, there was a grandpa and a little boy. The grandpa was a vampire also, and the little boy was a werewolf. But the best joke in the whole show was the fact that they also had their niece Living with them. And her name was Marilyn. And she was like this fresh-faced, blonde, teenage girl. Wore all the normal, like, 1960s buttoned-up teenage girl clothes. And this girl would have been the star of, like, any normal sitcom on TV at the time. I mean, you've got just this very attractive, like I said, fresh-faced, all-American, as they would say back then, blonde girl named Marilyn. And she lives in this monster family and lives with them. But she, she's not a monster. She doesn't look anything like them. So any other show she's the star of the show but in this show she was always like the outcast of the family it was the butt of many jokes um and including a character like that against this cast of ghoulish people was just really a stroke of genius it was the the thing that really made me like the Munsters a lot when i was i remember i would watch this show sometimes on nick at night back in the day man how many of the great shows did i discover from watching nick at night back then But I remember watching the Munsters opening credits and hearing this theme song. And they would show everybody coming out of the house at at the opening. And here comes Marilyn. And it's like, who the hell is Marilyn? Like, (laughs) is this an accident? Did they just accidentally bring this girl from, like, Leave it to Beaver and put her in the Munsters? But just brilliant. Very funny. And the show loved poking fun, like I said, at at some of those old monster movie sitcoms tropes and it was you know just very funny so but everything about this show was kind of similar to the rival show that was on at the same time the adams family The Munsters also had this really great cast. You had Fred Gwynn at the top. Yvonne DiCarlo was in there. She played the wife. Al Lewis played the grandpa. They were all the adults in the cast. And they all three, like, pretty serious actors, brought some earnestness to what could have been totally silly stuff, especially Yvonne DiCarlo. I mean, you're talking about a big stage drama actor. And she's playing, you know, this vampire wife woman on a sitcom and really brings some seriousness and some weight to what could have just it gotten lost in itself in how silly it was because it was really silly and their makeup was very over the top it was much more over the top makeup than the adams family was the adams family they could almost pass as a normal family if they wore different clothes but like the Munsters, i mean herman munster looked like frankenstein's monster so there's no way i mean he's he's like eight feet tall he's got the big like block head he walks around like you know all his body parts are fused together from zombie parts and it's uh it, it's just totally silly uh, and the kid's got like the bat wing or he's got the werewolf hair and the grandpa's got like the bat wing vampire hair. And he sleeps hanging upside down and all this stuff. I mean, they're sleeping in coffins and everything. It's just it's all really very over the top and silly. But the actors did a nice job making it a little bit, you know, more weighty than it should have probably been. But despite all that greatness, the Munsters only ran for two measly seasons and 70 episodes before CBS yanked it due to low ratings. The show did inspire six movie spinoffs that I had no idea about, one of, the, one of which actually went to theaters in 1966. And two of which had most of the original cast back in them. The rest of them, they replaced them with various actors. And a lot of them were made for TV. I think a couple of them were even animated. So just, you know, they kept this franchise going even though the show was pulled off the air after only 70 episodes. So it had a really short run. So it's a wonder that we even know about this show still to to this day, but it has had such a longer life in syndication than it did uh, when it was first on, when it was really just a flash in the pan and it was gone. And actually, I found out when I was looking into those Munsters movies that the late Edward Herman, who played Richard Gilmore famously on Gilmore Girls, he played Herman Munster in a 1995 made-for-TV movie called Here Come the Munsters. So he actually replaced Fred Gwen a couple years before Gilmore Girls comes out. He's playing Herman Munster. Who knew? So in honor of Halloween, the Munsters from CBS from 1964 to 66, gone way too soon its theme song by Jack Marshall is our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. Fun fact about me, when I was in high school, a band I was in, we used to play the Monsters theme song at Uh, our shows we would do it like you know just a little instrumental basically it's just one riff and like our guitar player and singer he knew that riff and so we would just kind of work it in and we played it you know we just repeat it over and over a few times especially we would do these halloween shows a lot at a friend of ours house he used to have a halloween party every year and we would always play and uh we did the monsters theme so it was kind of fun i don't know if any of the kids knew what the hell it was but we knew and we thought it was cool So the Emmys just aired several weeks ago, and I didn't watch the show. I haven't watched the Emmys, actually, like in years. I don't know why. I just, for as much as I love TV, I just do not give a shit about that show. And, I mean, I've lost my taste, really, for the Oscars over the years as well. And it's not really like the thing where I'm like, I disagree with all the winners or, or anything like that, because I don't always. It's just I don't really care about watching those shows anymore. And I used to really, those used to be big deals for me, and I loved watching the award shows, but now I really... All the fun's kind of gone out of them for me, and I just don't really care that much. They're just kind of all the same, and I I don't know, so I didn't watch the Emmys, but um, I did notice that HBO's limited series, I guess is what they're calling it now, it was going to be a full-on series, but, you know, the future of it is kind of up in the air. Anyway, Watchmen won a ton of awards uh, at the show, won 11 Emmys at the show Um, and just dominated the limited series category, like nothing else even had a chance. So um, I had been meaning to get around to Watchmen for a while because the book, the 1986 uh, graphic novel that it's based on, uh, called Watchmen, is, I mean, honestly, it might be my favorite book of all time. It was the book that really, like, I read it in college for the first time, and it got me into... Like graphic novels and comics, I never had been into those, and I'm still not a huge like comics guy. I'm more, I'm definitely more of a graphic novel like omnibus guy. I don't go and buy like the monthly, you know, comic issues or anything like that. But I do like to read the like collected volumes that tell a single, you know, kind of serial story. Um, the really good ones anyway, and Watchmen was got what got me into that, and the book is still so goddamn good, and it's just so unique in that genre, and the art's great, and the characters are interesting, and the whole thing is just so heavy and and, and full of politics and, and and full of, you know, just real issues and real character drama. So uh, I love the book Watchmen dearly. It's, it's really one of those that is like holy to me as far as a book goes. And even the movie... I think it came out in two thousand nine, two thousand ten. The Zack Snyder movie that was based on the graphic novel. I liked the movie too, and I still you know go back and watch it from time to time. There's some part that the sex scene is awful. It's the, probably the worst sex scene I've ever seen. It really ruined the song uh, "Hallelujah" the the Leonard Cohen song. You know everybody's heard "Hallelujah" a million times. That movie kind of ruined that song for me. And there you know are a few things about it. They changed the ending which I kind of understood at the time, but now that this TV show's come out, I don't understand as much because the TV show went with the original uh, ending of the book, which is just this bizarre thing. Anyway, so HBO does a mini-series based on the Watchmen universe, and this series came out in 2019, so it's, you know, like 30 years after the original, and this is a full-on sequel to the original book series. And, it, you know, partially to the movie as well, because the movie did tell the same story, but it's, it's really a sequel to the book, not to the movie because of the big changes they made in the end that wouldn't make sense continuity-wise with watching the movie and then watching the show, because they completely changed what is the big climactic ending of the story. Anyway, I don't want to get lost in all that stuff, and I don't want to spoil anything for you, but what I do want to say is, I've had a lot of fun watching this limited series. And I'm somebody who, like I said, I dearly love Watchmen the book. So I would probably be like the harshest critic of this TV adaptation, which is a totally new story. It's got new characters. It has some of the old characters in it as well, but it's got a whole new cast of characters, which are the main figures in this. And it tells an entirely new story, um, but ties in with the book in a lot of interesting ways that I think add to the lore um, and are really well done, uh, and I've just, I was, have been really impressed by this, and I understand why it won so many Emmys this year, um, but anyway, the Watchmen limited series, what it is about is, it's at its simplest, somewhat of a murder mystery, at least for, like, the first half of the series it is, um, because in the first episode, a character that you think is going to be around for a long time, ends up getting killed uh, in a very weird way at the end of the episode. And it's... There's a person who's saying they did it. Like, they're like, I'm the one who did it. But no one believes them because it's it would be, like, physically impossible for this person to have killed this other person. So it's a really good kind of mystery thing. And you're wondering why is all this happening? Why did this character get killed? And it ends up diving into his personal history. And anyway, the main character of the series is played by the great Regina King. And she plays this woman named Angela Abar, who is a a detective in the uh, Tulsa police department. The whole story takes place in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and it's in 2019, but it's an alternate history, 2019. So in the Watchmen universe, when Richard Nixon was president, there is one superhero who's a legitimate superhero who has, like, all kinds of powers. Like, any power you can name, he has them. His name's Dr. Manhattan. And he can basically do anything. He's like, if Superman really existed, that's who this guy would be. So he, the U.S. government ends up using him because he was an American citizen when he was a human before he turned into this superhero. U.S. government ends up using him to help them win the war in Vietnam. Like, dominate the war in vietnam and then vietnam subsequently becomes a united states state so we've got a state now in vietnam and and the united states are kind of this you know dominating presence because of our uh, us having dr manhattan on our side and richard nixon's president when all this happens of course because he was president then but he ends up being so popular he abolishes term limits everyone supports it and he's president for like 30 years uh, and that's kind of the way it's going in the book. Like Richard Nixon's, you know, pretty old and it's set in the eighties and he's still the president. Uh, and he's showing no signs of stopping being the president. Now in the TV series, Watchmen, Nixon's time has ended. All of the, anyone who's like a big conservative worships Nixon. He's like the greatest president they've ever had. And, uh, people who are left-leaning, look up to robert redford who ends up being the president after richard nixon and redford's still the president at the time this has happened and he's been president for a long time as well so that's what's going on like america's had two presidents in the past you know 40 50 years it's like 45 years or something like that um and it's just these weird the way that politics work in this world are a little different and it's not a major thing in the story but it does kind of hang over it and you hear Ideas like reparations being paid off, which is something that President Robert Redford has done, being paid off to victims of racial violence. Um, And you got to remember, this show came out in 2019, so it was before all of the stuff that exploded in 2020, but obviously it was after all the insane number of race-related killings that have happened over the decades. Um, But the show really did kind of predict that this was you know, going to come to a head and it ended up being very timely when it did finally come out. So all this political stuff is kind of simmering in the background. But what the show is really about is Regina King's character, Angela Abar, who is also a vigilante crime fighter. And so in this world, there has been a major attack on police. One Christmas Eve night, all police officers in Tulsa were murdered by this like KKK group and only two police officers survived. And one of them was angela abar so now anyone who's a police officer wears a mask again this is something that's really predicted where we're going to be now because everyone's wearing masks but everyone who's an officer has to wear a mask when they're on duty so no one can see their faces so no one can know who they are so they can't know where they live and they can't you know get revenge on them because everyone hates police officers so much but it also blends in with the fact that in the Watchmen universe You've got all these vigilante crime fighters. So as I said, Dr. Manhattan, he's the only real superhero out there. But you've got all these other people who like to wear masks, go out in the you know dark of night and fight crime. And some of them are good guys, some of them are bad guys and whatever. But the fact is vigilantes are illegal they've been outlawed in the united states so they're they're committing crimes when they're going out and fighting crime so it's this whole thing like people hate people that wear masks but some people love them some people worship the heroes other people hate them the entire culture is kind of fascinated by these vigilantes but they're not people with superheroes they're just people who kind of like to kick ass and sometimes like i said it's for good sometimes it's for bad so that's what the whole universe is basically about it's a pretty complicated thing but the story that they're telling in this is really interesting it's really well done i think the world that was already built was great and so they've just kind of tinkered with it and added on to it and made it even more interesting and i think this was about as perfect as an idea for a sequel as you could do for something that's as iconic as Watchmen is and something that's as complicated as Watchmen is i think trying to do the original story in miniseries form would have just been kind of dull because we've all seen it we've all read it i mean the book's been around forever it's just one of the most popular might be the most popular graphic novel ever written so a lot of people have read it and know the story pretty well so i'm glad they didn't just redo it even though that i think that still would have worked well because the story is great but doing something that is set in this time period and has to do with our world but also is connected in the watchman universe um was really cool and really unique, and this this TV series was created by Damon Lindelof, who I've talked a lot about here on the Stream Police over the years. He's the guy who created uh, Lost, you know, on ABC, and obviously that was just a cultural phenomenon in its own. But then Lost ends, and Lindelof creates uh, The Leftovers on HBO, and I picked The Leftovers as the best television show of the entire 2010s when I was running down my top 10 TV shows of the last decade um, as the decade was coming to a close. I told you, I thought that The Leftovers was as good as TV got in the 2010s. And I stand by that. And Lindelof was the guy who created it. I mean, he, he's just a master of telling stories on television, and he's proven it further with Watchmen because this is really, really good stuff. Um, I, I don't know that I'd say it's better than The Leftovers, But it's a different kind of thing, and it's a shorter thing because it's just one season of a story. And Lindelof said he was done with it after this season. He was like, "This is the story I wanted to tell. I don't want to do." HBO wanted him to do more seasons, and he told him no. So they left the door open for well, if you know you you have any more stories that you come up with that you want to tell, then let's do them. Uh, So hopefully this will come back, and he'll come up with something else. But he was inspired clearly and came up with something really good here. And the writing staff, you'll see at the end of the episode, it'll say who directed the show, who wrote the show. And it's a lot of women. It's a lot of uh, people with names that don't sound like Jeff Smith or whatever, you know, the typical, like, white guy name that you see attached to programs in television and and in movies. It it seems like it really was a work of a diverse crew of people behind the scenes, Uh, and the cast is that way as well. So it's... um, it, I, I've been very impressed with it. I, I've really liked it, and if you had any interest whatsoever in checking out Watchmen, I think you should. If you're somebody who loved the book, you definitely should check out Watchmen. I, I think it's going to be tough for you, honestly, if you haven't read the book or seen the original or, or seen the two thousand nine movie. I think it'll be tough because this story really, like, just assumes you know all these things that are weird that happened in the you know, original book, and it assumes you kind of know some things about the universe, so you can pay attention and pick up context clues, and they will explain things, it's not like you're going to be totally lost if you don't know anything about Watchmen and you jump into it, like, they, they do a good job of, of getting you up to speed in nice, natural ways, um, but I think it really will help you if you have read the book at least once, or seen the movie, like I said, um, because it's just... There's there's a lot here that connects to the book, so I, I was kind of impressed with that because I, it surprised me that they would lean so heavily on what happened in the book um, in this sequel that was made for television. Uh, but they really did. I mean, it, it was like they were respecting people who were fans of the book, and they were respecting the original, you know, work by Alan Moore and by Dave Gibbons. Uh, in creating this tv show so it was a really good way to do a sequel i think to a beloved work that is Watchmen. so uh i i've been a big fan of it i've got one episode left uh so i'm almost finished with it but i've been very impressed i've uh really it's had moments that were really funny it's had some really serious gripping moments it's had uh some great looks at real history including in tulsa um the Tulsa race massacre from 1921, which I didn't know anything about. I had never heard of this. It's This horrible crime uh, carried out by white supremacists back in the early twenties in Tulsa, where which had a thriving black community at the time. It was, there was an area called the black wall street was what it was called, uh, where all these black business owners were like, I, I mean, really doing really well in the early twenties in Tulsa. It was like the epicenter of kind of black business culture. Um, and then of course, All of these white supremacists got together, burned all these businesses, killed a lot of people right out in the middle of the streets. Um, And it's just a brutal moment in American history that I didn't know a lot about. And I mean, surprise, surprise, we never heard about that one in our school history books. So the show gets really into that and into what the government could do, should do maybe to pay people back, but also what would happen if the government did agree to pay people back and the inevitable backlash that would come from it. So it's a, there's a lot of stuff going on here. I think it's really um, important for our world right now that a show like this came out and uh, was just done the way it was done. So I'm glad that Watchmen won all those Emmys. I'm glad that HBO put their money behind it because this is a real HBO prestige project. Um, and HBO, you know, just crushes it pretty much any time they do a limited series, and this is right up there with kind of their best limited series that they've ever done. It, it's a really, uh, it, it looks good, it sounds good, the music's fantastic. It's Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did the music, and to me, this is the best music they've done. They've been doing, you know, scores for movies and TV shows for like the past decade, constantly. Ever since they did the the score for The Social Network. Uh, and this is the best that they've done since The Social Network, I think. I've been been—I've really loved the music in this show all the way through. Uh, and the entire cast is great. Tim Blake Nelson is awesome. He's fantastic in everything he's ever in. Uh, same can be said uh, about Jeremy Irons, Gene Smart, uh, Lou Gossett Jr. is in it. There's a lot of really good actors here, along with Regina King, carrying this show, and it's got a lot of humor, and it's also got... Um, just a lot of serious stuff so it's it's really well done and they do flashbacks really well in this show too which is hard to do um and exposition man it's hard to do exposition well but Watchmen really does it so i fully recommend you check it out it's on hbo max streaming right now i think it's on hbo now or is it hbo go i can't remember what the the other one's called the one where you have a subscription to hbo and then you get the app it's on that one too uh but it is on hbo max right now that's where i've been watching it so i've loved it but if you uh check it out i I recommend you totally read the book i mean it it doesn't take you that long to read it it's a graphic novel it's a it's a long one but uh, i think you'll be gripped and you'll really enjoy it maybe if you're not a graphic novel person i wasn't when i first read this book but i certainly became one uh and and fell in love with it so it's it's fantastic but at very least check out the movie which is also on hbo max right now and i think you'll be interested and it'll probably make you want to read the book. It's just a cool story cool world um and i'm glad that hbo backed it up and 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 put their money behind doing a tv show of it and i'm glad somebody like damon lindelof got behind it because he he's just a master i compared him before to rod serling as far as being tv being his medium and i think it it holds true so watchman's some of the best stuff that he's done Um, But anyway, it's streaming right now on HBO Max. Nine episodes, not a huge commitment from you, but I think you'll really, really enjoy it. Um, So check it out now.
3: Did you stay a police officer? Uh, For a while, then I retired. Why? Um,
4: I was one of the cops who got attacked on the white night. And that was before police officers were allowed to wear masks. So the bad guys, they, they knew who I was and they knew where I lived and they came to my house and they shot me. Right here. And the doctors, they had to pull apart my insides to find the bullet and get it out because they didn't want it to get <clears throat> um, And Um, anyway, <laughs> I figured making cakes and cookies was better than getting shot. So, I quit the police force and opened up a bakery. hmm
3: Did Redfordations pay for it?
2: Excuse me?
3: Your bakery. Did you pay for it with Redfordations?
2: All right, I'm going to send things over to Andy. Like I said, he's going to be telling you a little bit about the late, great Eddie Van Halen and diving into one of the great songs ever screaming jay hawkins and i put a spell on you can't wait to hear what he has to say about that one it's gonna the story's really good behind it trust me so anyway i'm gonna kick back here in my closet spread out as much as i can and then i'll be back a little bit to talk about netflix's new the haunting of Bly manor the follow-up to the haunting of hill house Uh, and i'm gonna tell you about some horror movies that will not insult your intelligence so all that's coming up Uh, in just a bit here on the stream police podcast, but take it away, Mr. Sedlak.
1: Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals. You can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role.
5: And today we're going to talk about the greatest spooky song of all time. It is a song you know, but I guarantee you don't know the story behind it or the man responsible for it. It's a gentleman who is otherworldly himself. Plus a tribute to Eddie Van Halen. My name is Andy Sedlack. Thank you for listening to the Stream Police podcast. I handle music duties around here. It's a responsibility that I love, one that I cherish. Just like Clint, this is an outlet for me. A nice little oasis in my month. And I thank you for joining us, my friend. This is a reminder that we don't get paid a nickel for what we do. And it's good, but, but you know, we could make it better. And that'll come with more support. So please just take two seconds. Maybe give us a positive rating. That'll do wonders. If you want to actually write a review, that will go even further. I know there are generous hearts out there that listen to this show. So please give it some consideration. I I thank you in advance. All right, let's get on with it.
6: Get on with it. Yes, get on with it.
5: We do need to take a moment to recognize the life and triumphs of Eddie Van Halen, who died in early October after a long battle with cancer. What can you say about Eddie Van Halen? He was a technical powerhouse. When he ripped a solo, it was like watching an action scene in a movie. It was like a high wire act. You know those internet videos of guys like wrestling gators. That's what it. That's what it looked like when when Eddie ripped one of those solos. You're watching it and you're saying to yourself, "How did he? How did he do that? How did he do that?" At the end of the day, he did it all in the name of fun. You know, you see these self-serious guitarists who treat the instrument like like an engineering project. That wasn't Eddie Van Halen. He knew that rock and roll was an outlet for a good time. He was not a stuffy guitarist, despite his technical treatment of the instrument. It was the best of both worlds, pun intended. God love you, Eddie Van Halen, a true lifer. Did you did you have an immediate, like, rapport with the guitar? I mean, when you first picked one up, was it, wow, I can do it, this? It came
7: kind of easy, you know?
5: I mean, do you have really long fingers or something? Are you, like, physically prepared for this, or...?
7: I don't know. It, it, I just picked it up, and it just seemed kind of natural, you know? And I think the years of playing piano helped, yeah because, you, know, you know, the fingers yeah. kind of moved. And... Do
1: you see your influence out there? I mean, do you watch guys play and say, oh... There it is. Yeah. I see some,
7: that, and yeah. Some, sometimes I go, oh, that's kind of cool. Other times I go, God, you know, what the hell did I start here? You know what I mean? I've never wanted to be a rock star. Yeah. I've I mean, never there are a lot wanted. of bands
5: that do. You know, yeah.
7: Well, I've never yeah. wanted to do interviews. I hate doing what I'm doing right now. I'd rather be playing my guitar and making music. You yeah. know, it's like, oh, it's like all the the stuff that goes along with it. I'd rather do without. Yeah. You know. Uh, if you think riding in a limo and, and doing interviews and having your picture taken when you feel like it, you know what I mean, and you you sit in the back of a car going like this with a guy who can't drive and doesn't know where he's going, if you think that's great, go ahead and be a rock star. You know, I'd, I'd rather just stay home make music.
5: Yeah, it looks like uh, Van Halen's 2014 album, A Different Kind of Truth. Uh, will end up being their last. It was somewhat overlooked at the time that it came out, but but now's a good time to check it out. Uh, you know, of course, records like 1984 are great, but, but sometimes it's good to explore some of the less-traveled areas of a band's catalog. Do it as a tribute to Van Halen. Let's switch gears. I think Halloween now is bigger than when I was a kid. Adults never dressed up when I was a kid. They do now. There are so many Halloween movies, and you know the candy aisles start showing up in, in the grocery stores earlier and earlier. And when you go to Halloween parties, there is one song... That you can almost always expect to hear. It's everywhere, and for good reason, it is the greatest spooky song of all time.
6: I put a spell on you because of my. Do. <laughs> What's up? I,
5: I put a spell on you by screaming, Jay Hawkins. It's a prickly song, slightly off kilter. It creeps along like Fritz in Frankenstein, or or Igor in Young Frankenstein. Yeah! I Put a Spell on You was released way back in 1956. Didn't do much when it came out. But after a few years, people started covering it. The first cover came out about two years later. Leading up to Nina Simone having a big hit with it in 1965. Here is Nina Simone's version of I Put a Spell on You. I
7: Put a
6: Spell on You Cause you're mine You better stop the things you do I ain't lying No, I ain't lying You know I can't stand it You're running around no better daddy i can't stand it because you put me down yeah, yeah i put a spell on you because you're mine
5: that's strong and really it's no wonder why so many people covered this song. Out of the gate, it's got a strong concept. Good melody, relatively easy to sing, and it leaves room for someone to put their own unique stamp on it. Here is Creedence Clearwater Revival's version of the song. You know, we, we can keep going. Here's Marilyn Manson's version of I Put a Spell on You. Here is Bette Midler doing the song in 1993's Hocus Pocus. Jay Hawkins actually wrote this song. It was unusual for performers in the 1950s to write their own material. But thank goodness he did because it made him a lot of money over the years. I wondered which version of his signature song did he like best? Well, I think they're all crazy.
8: David Bowie did it. The Crazy World of Arthur Brown. Creedence Clearwater did a splendid version. But the one that stands out in my mind more than anybody else was Nina Simone. All right. She did an operatic version of Spell, and I couldn't believe it. I listened to it maybe these times, and I said, I can't believe this woman. She's good, but she made me angry last year because she put out a book called I Put a Spell on You, her autobiography. And she says, I was overwhelmed when I heard Alan Price's version of Spell. And I said, Alan Price? I know Alan Price did a cover. But when she first did it on her album and says, I put a spell on, she says, When I saw Screamin' Jay Hawkins do it, I fell in love with it. Now, on her autobiography, she gives Alan Price credit. That turned me against Nina Simone.
5: That clip gives you some insight into who Screamin' Jay Hawkins was. He was a smart guy, but he was an odd guy. It's a riot just to listen to him talk about other musicians. He doesn't hold back. Here he is talking about Aretha Franklin.
6: Hey, what about, what, what about
8: uh, Aretha? What do you think about her? Aretha? Aretha Franklin? Well, if you like the Hindenburg, then you like Aretha Franklin. <laughs> yeah. But the woman has got a vocabulary worse than any sailor. And you know, I mean, this is really derogatory. The woman is hostile. She's hostile. She is hostile towards life herself. She's good. She makes money. I don't knock their talent. It's their personalities I can't stand.
5: It wasn't just female performers he had a problem with. He also talked shit about Bo Diddley, Chubby Checker, Chuck Berry. But here's the story behind Hawkins' signature hit, I Put a Spell on You. It started out as a straightforward blues song. And Hawkins started out as a straightforward blues performer. But one night, he decided to try out a new song in the studio. That song, of course, was I Put a Spell on You. Coincidentally, the producer on the session brought in a trunk of booze. And they drank and drank and drank. They recorded a bunch of songs, including I Put a Spell on You all stumbled out of the studio, and when they got in the next day, nobody could remember what they did the night before. But there it was on tape, and the version of I Put a Spell on You that they cut that night when they were ripped wound up being the version they released. With that in mind, it's fairly evident that Hawkins is wasted on the track when you listen to it.
6: Spell on you because mad.
5: the song was banned. Remember, this was the fifties. Then Hawkins met a DJ named Alan Freed right here in Cleveland. He convinced him to milk that that creepy vibe of the song for all it was worth. So Hawkins put a bone between his nose when he went on stage. He started dancing with a voodoo stick. He wore capes. He had a necklace of skulls. He had a cigarette-smoking skull on stage at every show. He named it Henry. He emerged from smoke performed mock voodoo rituals, all of this on stage. And Screamin' Jay Hawkins in the process became the first shock rocker. Here's a song of his called Constipation Blues. Eventually, Alan Freed talked him into bringing a coffin on stage and then rising out of that coffin as the band kicked into I Put a Spell on You. That one, that one took some convincing.
8: Now, I told him, I said, I won't do it. Black people don't get in that until they're dead. And that way they don't have to worry about getting out. He said, Jay, you guys, forget it. I've done you a lot of favors. I don't owe you nothing. I'll do anything you want, but I won't get in that coffin. So I went back to the dressing room. He followed me all the way up to the dressing room. He says, you will get in the coffin. And he pulled out a big wad of $100 bills. Jay, you got to. You're going to. I said, you can't buy me. But he kept on. I kept watching. I didn't want to miss nothing. <laughs> and I'd never seen a $1,000. And when he got to 2000 grand, I got weak. I said, well, I'll try it once, you know.
5: Screaming Jay Hawkins eventually made his way into movies. And he did TV spots. And he always played a a spoof of kind of like a voodoo priest. He toured constantly. And things being what they are, he met women. He met a lot of women. Hawkins claimed to have fathered 57 children. Some reports, however, claim that he fathered As many as 70, very few of them knew about the others. Jay Hawkins died in 2000 at the age of 70. But his final wish was for all of his kids to get together. So his biographer set up a website. Now remember, this was still in the early days of the internet. And asked people to self-identify themselves as Hawkins' kids. One after another came forward. Not all of them had proof, but, but many did. This was especially shocking to the legitimate children that he had, three of whom were in Cleveland, which is where Jay Hawkins is from where and where he was first married. He actually uh, grew up about 20 minutes from where I am right now. So his legitimate kids were in disbelief. They told a documentary filmmaker that They didn't know a thing about these other kids.
6: And it's been
7: especially hard for his family in Cleveland uh, to have dealt with the shock of knowing that there's all these other children since they felt that they were the only ones. My name is Leanne Hawkins, and everyone calls me Sookie. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, to Screaming Jay Hawkins. I am his number one child. When I first heard it, I didn't believe it. If my father said that, I wouldn't believe it. I wouldn't. How would you feel if it was your father? How would you feel? It's all in the headlines, and everywhere you go, people pointing at you and say, what number is you? That's what people are doing to me. When they find out who I am, what number are you? 32? 24? Then they start laughing. It's not funny. You're talking about my father.
5: Screaming Jay Hawkins was married six times. A total of 33 kids were verified by his biographer after his death. A dozen of his kids made the trip to Cleveland for a reunion in the early 2000s. In total, Jay Hawkins released 21 albums between 1958 and 1999, but the only hit he ever had was I Put a Spell on You. That's not to say other tracks don't deserve attention. I like quite a few. Here's one. Called the same damn thing. No matter where you
6: go, it's the same damn thing. No matter who you know, it's the same damn thing. <laughs> People are trying. Trying and lying. Everybody's dying.
5: Here is a cover of I Shot the Sheriff. remainder of his life he was remembered for I Put a Spell on You and his wacky stage show that went along with it. It was enough. It afforded him a career and he milked it for every penny he could get. I Put a Spell on You by screaming, Jay Hawkins is our pick for the greatest spooky song of all time.
8: Most people think there really is something wrong with me and and I guess deep down in my heart, John, maybe I am crazy. But if that's the only if, if being like this enables me to go to the back, I'm going to stay this way.
5: All right, friends, we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. You can find this playlist and enjoy it yourself. It is on Spotify. All you have to do is search Stream Police. It is ever-evolving. At the end of every show, we add five more songs to the playlist. This month, they're all Halloween themed songs. These would all sound good at your socially distanced Halloween party. <laughs> First, it's Whistling Past the Graveyard by Tom Waits.
6: a Mean
5: Second. Pet cemetery by the Ramones.
6: And the out with the steamboats, in Chicago and what I will alone. The ground light making a sound. The smell of death is all around. And at night when the cold wind blows, no one cares. Nobody.
5: Next, it's Dead Man's Party by Oingo Boingo. Then Astro Zombies by The Misfits. Finally, we have Zombie Zoo by Tom Petty. This one is for Ben Crawford. That's it. That's all I've got. I'm going to toss it back to Clint. I enjoyed what he had to say about Watchmen. Let's see what else he's got. All right, be good. Stay safe. Peace out. Clint, take it away.
2: Oh, man, excellent. Excellent picks there. Zombie Zoo by tom petty a deep cut if there ever was one i love that song great tune man i know uh you know you were kind of heavily zombie focused especially there in the end but i would have maybe thought uh when i'm thinking of great like halloween themed songs i always think of uh, little red riding hood by sam the sham and the pharaohs that's one of my absolute favorites great song if you've never heard it it's kind of creepy um and it goes perfect with the season. It's funny and silly and, I mean, Sam the sham and the Pharaoh, so what do you? What else could you expect? Who doesn't love a good 1960s novelty act? All right, so I don't want to give you a full review yet, but I wanted to real quick tell you that I've been watching The Haunting of Bly Manor, which just debuted on Netflix a few weeks ago as uh, of me recording this. And this is the new, I don't want to say new season because it's not a, it's not a follow-up. Uh, It's not a sequel to uh, The Haunting of Hill House, which was just excellent. I told you, I thought The Haunting of Hill House, when it came out, was about as scary as anything I've ever seen done as far as television horror goes. And I think it's it's right up there with the best things Netflix has ever produced, regardless of genre. That show, man, I wasn't sure, like, for the first four or five episodes. I didn't really find it that frightening. But then the last few episodes, dude, I mean, I still think about some of the images from that show in the end. Uh, and the, the big reveal just blew me away. So I thought The Haunting of Hill House was just a hell of a ride and uh, a great show from Netflix. So anyway, the people that, that made The Haunting of Hill House decided to do another season series. I don't even know how to refer to it really in reference to that show, but this, this one is called The Haunting of Bly Manor, and it's its own new show, but it's got a lot of the same actors in it so it's kind of doing the anthology thing and it's based on another classic book. Whereas the haunting of Hill house was based on the book, the haunting of Hill house, the haunting of Bly Manor is based on the classic Henry James novel, the turn of the screw, which is one of the great titles ever in literature. I've never read the turn of the screw, but I've seen the movie that, uh, it was ba- that was based on it. I should say, uh, the innocence, the Truman Capote, Truman Capote wrote the script for the movie. Um, came out in the 60s fantastic movie i'll be telling you a little bit more about it in a little bit but i love the innocence i thought that was one of the best horror movies i've ever seen and the haunting of Bly manor is the same story so i'm pretty excited about that except it updates it into a more modern time whereas the innocence was you know kind of old-fashioned it was in black and white uh t- took place back in the old days haunting of Bly manor takes place in the 1980s uh and today and it kind of goes back and forth But what it's about essentially is a uh, governess, I guess is the word that's used in the old one. I don't know if she's really a governess in this. That's kind of an old-fashioned term, but it's a young American woman who goes and takes a job that nobody else wants, even though on paper it sounds like a great job, uh, as a live-in like tutor and also, I don't want to say babysitter, but she pretty much is. I mean, she watches these two young kids, these two siblings, a boy and a girl, Uh, who have both had kind of some trouble themselves because their parents died, and their previous uh, nanny, I guess you could say, um, ended up dying under mysterious circumstances, killing herself. So uh, they've seen a lot of death for how old they are, and a lot of people didn't want to take this job, even though it's at a beautiful countryside home in England. Um, The help at the house is really nice, like the cook, the uh, person who cleans up the gardener they're all like really nice people uh so it's a really good situation and this american woman takes it but a lot of people didn't want it for a reason so then she gets there and of course the fun ensues and and she starts seeing ghosts she's already haunted by ghosts herself every time she looks in a mirror she sees this really menacing figure standing behind her looking over her shoulder um and she starts to only see things more as she gets isolated out in this big country home so it's uh it's creepy stuff man and the cast like i said is mostly the same the main star of the show is victoria pedretti she's an american actor and she was the youngest sister in the haunting of hill house so she was the young uh well there were two twins but she was the woman twin of the two she's like the main character here and i will say i'm only about halfway through or less than that as, as i'm talking to you right now so like i said don't want to give you a full review because i'm you know just still kind of early into watching it with beth but she can be a lot in this performance and i think she's supposed to be i think that that's what they're going for with the character because this was it was like this in the innocence as well she's kind of a um Uh, she's kind of a character who is very she is very nice and she's very like helpful to the children and everything and she's very wholesome and that's kind of a big thing with her character um but but she can be a little like doe-eyed and kind of uh, a lot maybe even a little annoying at times uh in the early going of this show so uh, i I don't know we'll see if that gets any better but i have to say that the kids who play flora and miles who are the two creepy children maybe what would a horror story be without creepy children you got to have creepy children especially creepy British children um they are very good the two kids that that play them are doing a really good job and the supporting cast in general the guy who plays the cook the women who play the uh, housekeeper and also the gardener are really good and I've enjoyed seeing them every time they're there but Victoria Pedretti the main actor you know I, I she's doing fine and I believe her but it's it's she can be a lot so with the facial expressions and stuff it's kind of a little too animated for me at times but uh i'm enjoying it so far i am interested to see where it's going to go there the the this is going a lot deeper into character motivations than the movie did because obviously it's got a lot more time to cover um so that's different i won't say that I, i like it more than the innocence right now because the innocence was just very very good very well done movie uh but Haunting of Blind Manor is uh, kind of along the same lines as the Haunting of Hill House as far as its tone goes, but I think its story is not as interesting as the story was. The, the Haunting of Hill House had this great hook, right? And it was going back and forth in time to back to their childhood, and something terrible happened when they were kids, and, and, and it's wrecked all of them as adults. Like they're all just these miserable people. And so you kept going back and forth and you're wondering like, you know, what was it that happened and what kind of things did they see? And was it really haunted at this mansion or, you know, and and it just had this great hook that kept you going in its mystery. And I think the characters were really strongly done. Uh, But the haunting of Bly Manor, I think its story is a little bit more like we've seen this kind of, we've seen this story done before. So it'll feel like well-worn territory when you're talking about a, A big country house you know and they're being ghosts and it's like are they really ghosts or is she just imagining them i mean it's all kind of stuff that you've seen done before and that's probably because the book the turn of the screw is such a classic but i will say it feels a little bit more typical than the haunting of hill house which to me felt very different and felt a lot more character driven than this one does uh to this point but haunting of blind manor right now is streaming on netflix i do like what i've seen so far so uh you know you might want to check it out before halloween i'll let you know my full thoughts on it in next month's edition of the stream police
3: what a beautiful song what song the one you were just singing you're miss clayton you must be and you're so pretty I told Mars you'd be pretty, how perfectly splendid. You must be Flora. I hope I didn't startle you. Not at all, you're expected. Oh. i just so, so pleased you're here. <laughs> Mrs. Gross will want to see you. And Miles, mm-hmm. and Owen, and Jamie. You know, I've met Owen. When did you meet Owen? On the car ride-up. Now, what's that? Oh, this. Just a silly thing, really. Just a moment. What a gorgeous lake. Oh, you mustn't. It really is just a smelly old pond. And do you know there are leeches in there? Whole little things like vampire slugs and the nastiest beetles. Who needs that old pilot anyway? There's so much else, that's so much better. It really is perfectly splendid to meet you.
2: So I was watching TV this last month, and I keep seeing Geico has brought back that ad that they did years ago. It's an old-ass ad but they bring it back like every Halloween. The one where you've got the, you know, like four young people and they're supposed to be in a horror movie and, you know, they have a running car that they could run and and get into to get away, but they decide instead to hide behind some chainsaws and, of course, there's the big killer standing like right behind them. And the announcer on the commercial says, If you're in a horror movie, you make poor decisions. That's what you do. And that is, I mean, really astute. I like this commercial because it's kind of a very (laughs) astute, obvious observation Uh, that everyone has thought but not everyone has articulated about horror movies and especially in the slasher genre but it got me thinking that many horror movies are this way and you're just screaming at the screen the whole time and a lot of times it ends up making you not care if the characters live or die and sometimes you're even rooting for the killer because they seem to be the only person with any sense Whereas, you know, the people who you're supposed to be rooting for, I mean, they're they're doing dumb things like not turning the lights on, like, you know, not driving the car away, like not calling 911, like just dumbass things that you, you, any, like, person in a situation where their life's in danger would would probably do. I mean, hiding in a closet, you know, when, like, it's the only place that you could possibly hide in a room and you've got some knife-wielding maniac, like, things like that. So horror movies can be very frustrating but i i started thinking about the horror movies that don't follow that trope and that do not insult your intelligence and they believe me believe it or not there are some really good horror movies out there even slasher movies that do not insult your intelligence so i decided i'd tell you about five of them that i think you should seek out if you haven't already seen them and a couple of these are classics and maybe i'll, I'll i'll change the way you've thought about them Uh, but these are these are horror movies that don't insult the audience and actually feature protagonists who for the most part make sound decisions to varying degrees of success in the end so first off i want to start with 1980s the shining one of the all-time classic horror slasher movies stanley kubrick directs it stephen king writes the source novel. Stephen King famously hates the film uh, because Kubrick you know, took it in such his own direction as he's going to do. I mean, he's he's the ultimate auteur director. So King didn't like it, but everyone else loves it. I mean, it's widely considered the best work ever made off of King's uh, books. So that has to really kind of dig at him a little bit, I'm sure. But I mean, there's a difference between making movies and writing books and King's got to know this. So with The Shining from 1980. It's, I mean, I can't say anything more about it than has already been said. It's, it's a fantastic movie. It's totally creepy. It's got one of the great ending shots ever in history. It's got some of the most beautiful cinematography, period. And it's got Jack Nicholson really at his absolute most menacing, which is saying something because he's done some menacing roles. But if you go back and watch The Shining, I don't want you to watch Jack Nicholson, okay? I want you to pay attention to Shelley Duvall's character, Wendy who is Jack Nicholson's wife, in the movie. Pay attention to her, because that character is one of the most astute horror protagonists that I have ever seen in any movie. She's written very well as far as her thought process and the actions she takes. At every sign of danger, She does the absolute best things that she could possibly do in her power to keep herself and her young son, Danny, safe. Whether it's from her lunatic husband or from the horrible weather outside or from any other things that could be happening, the creepy apparitions in this hotel. She's doing the right things. Now, she's totally, like, frantic and she's frenetic in her performance so it kind of makes wendy seem like a goofy cartoon character and and shelly duvall's just kind of a goofy looking person you know to begin with she's very skinny lanky she's got those big teeth i mean so she's just kind of a cartoonish looking person and i think it makes the performance seem like it's cartoonish but it's really not and and think about the situation she's in i mean she's trapped in this creepy hotel all winter long, and there's this horrible winter storm going on, so no chance to leave. She's got a husband who she should be able to trust, but who has apparently snapped. And she has a young son that she's got to keep safe who can't help her. I mean, she's completely on her own in this situation. So who wouldn't be frantic in that situation? So I think Shelly Duvall plays it perfectly. And I think the character of Wendy's written really well. But watch the movie and and look at the things she does, because she really does at every turn do the right things and the only things that she can do in her power so The Shining is the first one I'm going to give you for horror movies that do not insult your intelligence and do not feature characters making terrible decisions number two I'm going to give you another one uh, from the same time period and another equally classic movie 1979's Alien this is another great example of a smart protagonist again a woman trapped in an awful situation you've got all the colleagues on board this spaceship called the Nostromo being cut down by this apex predator alien one by one meanwhile Ripley who's played by Sigourney Weaver keeps surviving because of her wits and at this point you know everyone knows about Alien and the Alien sequels and they know about the Alien series and Sigourney Weaver you know that she's the star of the movie But if you imagine yourself seeing Alien in 1979 in theaters, Sigourney Weaver is a complete unknown actor. Total unknown. She had done two movies before this, bit parts, was not a star, did not have name billing at all at this point. So nobody knows who Sigourney Weaver is. Her character was not the captain of the ship. Ripley's just like another officer on board, there's several of them. I mean, she easily could have just blended into the background. So you sit down to watch Alien in 1979, you have no idea like that she's going to be the, the main character. You're going to think it's going to be the captain or someone else, probably. You're not going to think it's going to be this woman who's going to end up getting out in the end and, and being the big badass of the whole crew. So her being the brains of the operation and the toughest person in the room would have been a major surprise. Like, no one would have expected it. So I think that makes the movie work even better if you try to imagine yourself watching it as someone who doesn't know Ripley is, the, you know, going to be like the sole survivor and the person who... Uh, ends up you know saving the day it's just another thing that i think makes alien a masterpiece and there are many reasons why this movie is a masterpiece the look of it is second to none i still think it's one of the most gorgeously designed set movies ever done uh just the production design is incredible Um, and it's a it's a fantastic movie the sound is so good the the actual alien the design of it is is incredible it's a, a wonderful movie. I love it. Uh, I never get tired of watching Aliens. So that's, a, again, another horror movie that does not insult your intelligence. You will not be screaming at the screen, at least in the case of Ripley. You won't be screaming at the screen telling her not to do certain things because she knows what to do. She's trained in this stuff. And uh, she's a smart person, a smart character. And that's more than you can say about many horror protagonists. Okay, I'm going to go to 1968 now. I'll give you another one of my favorites. Rosemary's Baby. The great Roman Polanski movie from 1968 starring Mia Farrow. This is one of those where the main character may be a little bit too trusting, maybe a little bit too naive for her own good, Rosemary Woodhouse. But it's not because she's stupid. Like, you never think that Rosemary is a stupid person. It's just that she, like all of us, wants to believe she can trust the people around her, including her own husband, and she loves them. And so she gives him the benefit of the doubt. So the main character, though, played by Mia Farrow, is this gentle woman. Very gentle. As far as horror protagonists go, there might not be one that's more gentle than Rosemary. She's not a badass. She's not going to cut anybody down. She's not going to pull a baseball bat out and knock your head off with it. She's a very gentle person. And she's just in this awful situation. But she trusts her husband. She trusts her kindly neighbors. And she trusts her doctor to help her get through what is a rough pregnancy. If you don't know anything about Rosemary's Baby, she is pregnant, a young woman living with her husband in a new apartment building um, in the city. So this is not one of those movies where you're out in the country. Rosemary's Baby breaks a lot of the old horror tropes, and it's another reason why I like this movie so much. Um, because it shouldn't be that scary, but it is. And this movie is terribly scary. And I think just imagining yourself in her situation is so frightening. Like, I don't know if any horror protagonist has it worse than Rosemary's, Rosemary Woodhouse, I should say. Um, But she's pregnant and she starts to become increasingly paranoid that the people around her are trying to use her and use her baby for something nefarious. So uh, unfortunately, in her situation, every person... Is tilted so far against her that she's essentially left completely helpless especially in how frail her physical state is I mean she's not a very like she's a very thin you know rail thin woman to begin with she looks almost sickly through the whole movie and then she becomes pregnant so it's even worse for her as far as physically what she's able to do so you feel bad for Rosemary and you really want to help her but I don't you never get the sense that she's stupid and that's a credit to the writing, and it's a credit to Mia, Mia Farrow's performance, which is stellar uh, in this movie. She's just the victim of this massive conspiracy, and she's unable to trust anyone, and it's unfortunate. So that's the that's the story with Rosemary's Baby. It's another another horror movie that does not insult your intelligence for one minute. It is one of those those sometimes where you're like screaming at tell, screaming at the screen and telling her not to be so naive. But how can you blame her? I mean what reason does she really have to not believe these people and not trust them and to not think that they have her best interests in mind, especially her own husband? I mean, why would he sell her out? A fourth one here for you, 1961's The Innocents. And I mentioned this one when I was talking about The Haunting of Bly Manor. This is the movie that's based on the same book that The Haunting of Bly Manor was based on. This movie was written by Truman Capote. Um, and it's really just... A masterpiece of early horror it's it's older like i said 61 the governess character in this is certainly this smart mature woman so she's not a character who's making poor poor choices again but you get the sense again that she's the victim of her own mental health issues here so everything that happens can kind of be seen as being her own fault Or a supernatural event that makes her the victim. So either way, her decision making is sound from start to finish. You don't ever think that the governess is doing the wrong things, but you just wonder if her mind's playing tricks on her or if she really is the victim of this awful circumstance that no one can get her out of at this point if these ghosts if they're real have been targeting her so the innocence is really good at at that again not insulting your intelligence not making you feel stupid and i never once wanted to yell at the tv when i was watching that movie so that is rare for the horror genre 1961's the innocence and finally i'm going to give you one from 1988 it's called the vanishing and this is a foreign movie it's uh all done in Dutch, so if you're into foreign movies, you definitely need to check this one out. It's uh, Criterion Collection has released a version of it that you should seek out if you can. Do not get it confu- confused. Just whatever you do, do not get it mixed up with the American remake that came out in the 90s and I think had Jeff Bridges. It's also called The Vanishing, but it that one is like just trash compared to this one. This one, even though they were both done by the same director... Interestingly, but the original, the Vanishing from 1988, is so good. If you want a grim movie, like if you like your horror movies grim and dark, check out the Vanishing because it really is both of those things. This one comes from the Netherlands, and uh, it's one of my absolute favorites. This this is a movie unlike the other ones I've talked about. The main character in the Vanishing does make some really bad decisions that put himself in danger, but here's the difference between his decisions and the decisions of the typical horror movie protagonist who makes dumb decisions. You understand the whole way through why he's making the decisions that he's making. You get it, because the writing does the service of... You understand why he's doing these things, why he's putting himself in danger. So the story. What it's about is a guy who has searched for years obsessively for his girlfriend who disappeared one day while they were on vacation together in France. They were a young couple in love and she just vanished. And so for like a decade later, he's obsessed with trying to find her. So he puts himself in great danger in the pursuit of clues, and he finally starts to make, you know, some he finally starts to make some tracks and figure out maybe what happened to her, but he starts going down a rabbit hole and putting himself in real danger doing this. But if you put yourself in his footsteps, you feel like you might make the same choices. What the vanishing's all about is obsession and when you need to let something go and when you need to call something a loss, even when it's someone's life that you're talking about here. Um, and it's, you know, how the the idea of making yourself into a hero, as he may think of himself can really be dangerous for you and can get yourself killed uh so the guy in this movie refuses to move on remains frozen in this single moment in time where his girlfriend vanishes and he follows the clues at his own peril so it's uh it's a really well done movie it's got one of my favorite endings ever in the horror genre and i think um you'll really like the vanishing if you're if you're into foreign movies you know again it's it's in dutch so it's not an english language movie it might be a little hard for you to find but it's criterion collection so you should be able to check it out at your library or on the criterion channel or somewhere else it's not that obscure uh but it's a really good movie knocked me on my ass the first time i ever watched it a couple years ago so there you go five horror movies that do not insult your intelligence and really don't make you scream at the screen very much 1988's The Vanishing 1961's The Innocence 1968's Rosemary's Baby 1979's Alien and 1980's The Shining when you go back and watch The Shining again I'm telling you, watch Shelley Duvall now don't watch Jack Nicholson, watch Shelley Duvall and see how astute she is she's smart, she's smart she might be a total like you know, over the top screaming and stuff like that but she's she's smart, she knows what she's doing
8: I just want to go back to my room (laughs)
4: What? I'm very confused. (laughs) I just made a chance to think things over.
7: You've had your whole fucking life to think things over. What good's a few minutes more going to do you now?
4: Stay with me. Please.
2: It was kind of a lean month for me as far as the best thing I watched this month. I always like to tell you about the best... Movie that I watched in the past month, it was it was lean for me. I had a hard time picking a best one, but uh, the my favorite movie I watched this month was 2016's Rogue One, the Star Wars spinoff movie, um, and I think honestly this is the best of all the Star Wars movies that have come since the original trilogy, and uh, you know including the you know the George Lucas prequels and all the Disney Star Wars movies, and I've liked. You know, a couple of the Disney Star Wars movies I really liked, um, The Last Jedi, and I, I liked The Force Awakens as well. But I'm telling you, Rogue One was stellar. I, I I think it's as good as the original trilogy is in a lot of ways. I mean, it doesn't have that, you know, really, truly epic kind of thing because it's, it's just one single movie and it's got a kind of be, be definite beginning and end. Um, but it's a really good movie. It's a great heist movie, which I didn't expect from the Star Wars universe. And it's got some really good visuals, interesting characters. And it, there's no question for a minute that it's set in the Star Wars universe. I mean, you just get it. All those signature things are thrown in there. All these great, like, you know, practical effects creatures, aliens are seen in the background in these city shots. And everything kind of feels bustling and full of life at times. Um, and it's got a hook also at the end that really makes you immediately want to watch the original trilogy all over again. So uh, I think it's really good. I think Felicity Jones does a very nice job carrying the movie. The whole cast is really good, though. Um, I just think Rogue One is is fantastic. This is This is what I would like to see Disney do with their Star Wars movies. I'd like to see them find ways to tell stories, because this is a universe. Find stories that haven't been done to death and new characters that we haven't seen a million times before and and tell us these stories but in that classic star wars visual audio experience that we get from knowing it's star wars but all new story and I, i think uh rogue one was definitely that so it's a it's a really good one that disney should be proud of if you somehow missed it or just thought it was not really worth your time check it out even if you don't necessarily like star wars that much it's just a really tight action heist you know kind of movie so it's it's really well done it's got some cool characters in it as well what is it you want
8: the work has stalled
2: i need you to come back i won't do it clinic
8: we were on the verge of greatness we were this close to providing peace and security for the galaxy you're confusing peace with terror
2: well you have to start somewhere All right, let's get to what is streaming right now. I always like to give you some streaming recommendations on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, and HBO Max. I'll tell you something funny, and I'll tell you something serious. For something funny, let's go to Netflix now. Uh, It's not necessarily a comedy, but it it does have a lot of funny, darkly funny moments. is Fargo. Uh, a modern classic from the coen brothers it's uh also actually streaming on amazon right now so if you have netflix or amazon and you haven't watched fargo give it a watch i mean this is a a, just a -a one-of-a-kind american classic it's got a great mystery story in it as well some iconic visuals some uh, great dialogue uh and just a cool movie not a lot of movies being set in the midwest uh but this one was and this one was really unique when it came out and it inspired one of the best tv shows i think in modern tv history so it's uh, this is where it all started fargo from 1996 streaming now on netflix and also on amazon something serious for you on netflix from 1999 sleepy hollow don't sleep on sleepy hollow this is a uh, really cool movie that i have always liked and i've always thought was underrated visually this is as good as tim burton has been uh, ever, I mean, Tim Burton's known for his visuals. He's given us some of the most eye-popping movies that we've ever seen, and Sleepy Hollow is is a dream. And Christina Ricci's great, and Johnny Depp is fantastic, and Christopher Walken just creeps the hell out of you as uh, the headless horseman. And Jeffrey Rush is in it as well. It's got a very, very good cast, um, and a good story, a good twist on the classic, you know, done to death Washington Irving. Um, ichabod crane sleepy hollow story which is kind of the original american horror story uh, which is pretty cool so that is uh, streaming for you right now on netflix fully recommended on a halloween night especially if there's a little fog outside check that one out Um, i do also want to mention that hannibal is now on netflix i just in passing when I want to mention that I Hannibal was also in my top 10 TV shows of the 2010s. It's a show I've deeply loved ever since the first time I watched it, but it was always, it was never on Netflix. It was always on Amazon prime. So if you have Netflix and you missed out on Hannibal, give it a watch three seasons. You'll be through it really quickly. Uh, it does some really interesting things with the universe of the Hannibal Lecter books and kind of blending all those books together into one TV series uh, and telling all these stories out of order and, uh, it's got a great performance at the top from Mads Mikkelsen as Hannibal Lecter. So I uh, could not recommend Hannibal more. I absolutely love that show. But that's now streaming for you on Netflix. Also perfect for Halloween time. All right, let's go to Amazon. Something funny for you. 2006's Borat. Now, Amazon just announced that it's it's going to be the home of the new Borat sequel that nobody knew was coming. And that's coming out here in the next couple weeks. But the original Borat, an absolute classic. I remember going to see it in theaters and and dying laughing, just the whole theater. Everyone was cracking up the whole time. You couldn't even hardly hear half the dialogue. Um, Just brilliantly done, you know, political, very satirical, and, you know, a little bit offensive, of course, in a lot of places, but I think really does a nice job of of, uh, pointing out some of the things about America that we shouldn't be so proud about, of ourselves so it's a it's a it's just a one-of-a-kind kind kind of movie so if you've never seen borat check it out it's on amazon prime right now and something serious for you on amazon how about girl interrupted from 1999 this is one of my favorites uh just rewatched this one again a couple years ago and it's still as good as ever i i love this movie i think it takes a lot of the old tropes of the movie genre where you're set in a you know an insane asylum for lack of a better term in a sanitarium um and it kind of turns them on their head and it it actually this movie i always thought was interesting because it actually made living in one of those places look fun like the institution kind of seemed fun whereas when you're watching one flew over the cuckoo's nest it's it looks terrible it's like prison but girl interrupted kind of made it seem like Hey, this actually can be fun as long as you're surrounded by the right people. And in this case, it's a, a bunch of women who kind of end up having each other's backs at this uh, asylum. And Whoopi Goldberg does a really good job as this uh, nurse in the movie as well. But it's a really good term from Angelina Jolie. She won an Oscar for it. And uh, the star of the movie is Winona Ryder, and she does a really good job also. So, Girl Interrupted, I love it. I think it's got really good characters, great story, turns a lot of those things that you are expecting on their head. That's streaming now on Amazon if you're looking for something to watch. How about something funny on Hulu? Let's give you High Fidelity from 2000. Still funny. Uh, it's got a great cameo from Bruce Springsteen. Um, Jack Black, it, like. I remember seeing this movie when it first came out. And I thought Jack Black was the funniest guy I'd ever seen in my life. Like he's so he just dominates like every scene he's in. Uh, but it's really well written. They took the book High Fidelity and turned it into an American story set in Chicago instead of set in London. And you know, it's about the, just this miserable guy who owns a record store and is obsessed with talking about with making top five lists of songs, of albums, and of girlfriends and moments in his life, and he's just totally self-obsessed, but, you know, ends up learning some lessons along the way, and uh, John Cusack is the star of that one, so check out High Fidelity if you missed it, it's streaming for you now on Hulu. Something serious on Hulu, from 2009, I'm going to give you Mother, this is a Korean movie, it was directed by Bong Joon-ho, who became a household name after doing Parasite, which won the... You know, best picture oscar at uh, the oscars last year Uh, but this movie he did in 2009 and bong joon-ho any movie you look up by him is pretty much a winner but mother is my favorite one i've seen of his other than parasite it's a, a really just intense um story about this woman who is kind of you know trying to get revenge and and prove her own like son's innocence and just she, she would go stop at no lengths to protect her child. Uh, and I mean, no lengths, and it's an intense movie. There's not, this movie is not have humor in it. It's very serious, very grim. Uh, and it's got a very good lead performance at the top of it as well. So, uh, check out mother. If you're interested in seeing more work from Bong Joon-ho, if you liked parasite, I think you should watch this one. It's streaming right now on Hulu. And finally, on HBO Max, a couple good movies for you. They've got a good selection there. Something funny, I'm going to throw at you if you've never seen it, 1979's, or 78's, I'm sorry, Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke. I watch this movie like once a year and die laughing every time I see it. It never gets old. It's just got so many great visual jokes. It's got so many great you know verbal jokes, great soundtrack, kick-ass soundtrack from top to bottom. Uh, and and Cheech and Chong are just full-throated, man. They just go at it all the way and would define kind of their own comedy characters, which were icons back in the 70s, uh, for generations to come with this movie. It's a really well-done movie. Stacey Keach is in it as well, uh, playing kind of the heavy, the cop. Everyone in the movie except for Cheech and Chong is kind of the heavy in this movie, so it's like the world against these two guys who just want to smoke weed, basically, and not have anyone else bother them. Uh, but I love it. I, I never get tired of Up and Smoke. It's so funny. When, boy, when are you going to get your
6: act together? Rose. Oh. oh, good God almighty me. I think he's the Antichrist. <laughs> Anthony, I want to talk to you. Now, listen. Don't walk away from me when I'm talking to you. You get a goddamn I job got, before really... sundown. Or we're what, shipping what you off to do? military That's school what with a goddamn Finkelstein shit kid. Son of a
2: bitch. And finally, something serious for you on HBO Max keeping with Halloween. Let's go to 1995's Seven. Oh man, I consider this to be one of the rare perfect movies. There's not a single thing about it I would change. The cinematography is legendary. The script is classic. The, uh, the performances are awesome. It's got great actors right at the top of it. It's got the nonstop rain. It's got awesome music on the soundtrack. One of the best opening title sequences ever. And maybe the best ending in uh, thriller history. I mean, it's got to be right up there. So just this movie has everything. There's not a single thing about Seven that I would change. I, I love it. every time. It's one of those every time I see it on, like on IFC or something gotta watch it can't stop so uh just unbeatable as far as modern noir goes seven's right at the top of the heap so check it out on hbo max right now if somehow you've missed it after all these years although i have a hard time imagining anyone not having seen seven at this point all right my friend that's going to do it for another edition of the stream police podcast thanks for hanging out with us again this month always appreciate it tell your friends tell your family uh, tell your dog as well. While they're sitting at home, they need something to listen to. So hit that subscribe button and uh, spread the love around as well. I once again want to thank my friend and yours, Andy Sedlak. If you want to reach out to him, he's at SedlakJournal at gmail.com. S-E-D-L-A-K Journal at gmail.com. I am at the Clint Davis at gmail. the Clint Davis at gmail.com. Uh, check us out on Instagram as well, and check me out on YouTube at Overdue Review. We'll talk to you again in a month. Until then, stream on.
0: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Customer survey 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.